Let's turn to 1 Samuel 27. 1 Samuel 27. The title of the sermon is, That is the Worst Decision of Your Life. Have you ever heard that before? 1 Samuel 27, I'm going to read verses 1 all the way to chapter 28, verse 2. Now the Lord said to himself, I mean David said to himself, Now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. Saul then will despair of searching for me any more in all the territory of Israel, and I will escape from his hand. So David arose and crossed over he and his 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, each with his household, even David with his two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the Carmelitess, Nabal's wife, mid- widow. Now it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he no longer searched for him. Then David said to Achish, If now I have found favor in your sight, let them give me a place in one of the cities in the country, that I may live there. For why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So Achish gave him Ziklag that day. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. The number of days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites, for they were the inhabitants of the land from ancient times, as you come to Shur, even as far as the land of Egypt. David attacked the land and did not leave a man or a woman alive. And he took away the sheep, the cattle, the donkeys, and the cattle, the camels, and the clothing. Then he returned and came to Achish. Now Achish said, Where have you made a raid today? And David said, Against the Negev of Judah, and against the Negev of the Jeremalites, and against the Negev of the Kenites. David did not leave a man or a woman alive to bring to Gath, saying, Otherwise they will tell about us, saying, So has David done. And so has been his practice all the time he has lived in the country of the Philistines. So Achish believed David, saying, He has surely made himself odious among his own people, Israel. Therefore he will become my servant forever. Now it came about in those days that the Philistines gathered their armed camps for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Know assuredly that you will go out with me in the camp, you and your men. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. So Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. The word of the Lord. We had a sermon last time on fainting fits. Fainting fits. Now, if you want to read a text in the Bible that will give you a fainting fit, you just heard it. (laughs) When you read the commentaries on 1 Samuel 27, it appears that every single one of them is bent on the fact that David is the prodigal son. David has left 
his land and gone into that far country called the land of the Philistines. He's gone off the reservation, as we might say. According to one commentator, he's a fool. According to another commentator, he's become a Philistine. According to another, another commentator, he's in spiritual decline. He's faithless. He's in, great, in a great period of spiritual backsliding. It seems that one commentator, if you read him, makes negative comments. That commentator reads his comments and makes more. By the end of you reading about seven or eight, just piled higher and deeper of negative comments. One commentator is fairly balanced. He says the weight of the text seems to point that David is in spiritual decline. Another commentator says this, The Word of God makes no accusation. I'm going that way. The Bible, one person said, one commentator says, sheds a lot of light on commentaries. The Bible sheds a lot of light on commentaries. We read the Bible and we see what the Bible says. We read the Bible and we can say what the Bible says and we need to be careful to say only what it says and we need to be careful not to say what it doesn't say. So let's think about the things we can say. Is David having a fainting fit? I think so. We can say that David is down. We can say that David is discouraged. And in verse 1 of chapter 27, he says, Now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. That's a fainting fit. This man has been helped and promised by God. Saul himself says, I know you're going to be the king. And now he's going, I'll never be the king. He's He's fainting. He has been helped by God's providences. He's been taken care of. And yet here he is fainting. I think he's down. I think he's discouraged. I think we can say that. We can say that David made a bad decision. Look at verse 1 again. There is nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. Is there nothing better? (laughs) There's nothing better? Surely there's better. Something's better than to go into the land of the Philistines. Surely. I'm going to, you know, the best thing I can do, he should say, is trust God and to deliver me out of my troubles. But here's the thing. Do we understand his decision? I think we have to understand his decision. I think we have to understand that it's not David and 600 men. It's David and his two wives and their kids. It's David and his men and their households. And if you add just... If you just add one woman to every man and add one child to every man and woman, you're at 1,800. So most commentators believe we're talking about 2,000 folks here. What is David going to do with the madman running after him and having, who has informants in every part of the land? So David has to think about what he's doing. He's not just him anymore. Where do I hide all these people? I think we can say that David's assessments of the fact is very clear. If he keeps running from Saul, he's running from Saul in Israel with 2,000 folks where informants are everywhere. David can't sit still or he will be found. That's That's an option number two. That's not an option. And number three, the final solution that he gives is to go to the Philistines, ask for asylum, and hope that Saul stops searching for me. What our text does not say is that David is a backslider. You just, we just read it. 
I think he's discouraged. I think he's depressed. I think he's not remembering the promises of God. I think he's not remembering the providences of God. But I cannot agree that he's faithless and a fool. I cannot believe he's become a Philistine. And I think that we must say only what our text tells us. God's name, the the way that the guys who pose all of the negative against David and see him as a backslider, they look at this text and they say that God's name is not mentioned. Strike one. They look at this text and they say, David is not praying. Strike two. They look at this text and they say, David is not inquiring of the Lord through the priest or through a prophet. Strike three. David's bad. But here's the thing. Uh, Do you remember any time that David did anything wrong that his conscience did not bother him? Every time David does something wrong, his conscience bothers him. I don't find that in this text. When David is out doing these things, just because the text doesn't say that he's not praying and not seeking the word of the Lord doesn't mean that he's not. Just because the text says he's not doesn't mean that he's not. In fact, I'm going to try to point out to you that I think David made a bad decision. I think that sometimes we might even call our decisions ourselves, oh, that was the worst decision of David's young life. But I think that David is going to recover really quickly. And I want to show you through this text that what sometimes he called, we, we might call it the worst decision of David's young life, that God is in it and that God is going to help him and God is going to refresh him and God is going to give him success. In your life, you're going to find yourself up against decisions. Confronted with circumstances, realities, and you're going to have to make a decision. And then when you get done making your decision, you're going to sit there and you're going to look at yourself and go, was that the worst decision of my entire life? You write it down in your diary and you go back a few days later and you go, that was the worst decision of my life. You're critical of yourself. You point your finger at yourself. You go back a year after you've written it down and you look back and you go, hmm, God was there. God was taking care of me when I thought I had made the worst decision of my life. Well, here's a couple of points. God turns what you call the worst decision in your life into a place of rest. David is desperate. David makes a bad decision. David's in a swamp. When you're in a swamp... Have you ever been in a swamp? There's no good place to turn if you're in a swamp. If you turn, you're in a swamp. One time I fell out of the boat when I was fishing into just a big giant uh, bed of of the green. What's the stuff that people, you know, you fish in? I'm glad people were there because, man, there was no good place to turn. I was just in the green stuff. It was gross. And so, so there's no good place to turn. And so in chapter 21, remember, David goes to Gath and he goes to Achish for the first time and they recognize who he is. And what does he do? He has to play the, the part of a, a madman to get out away from them because they recognize him. They said, oh, that's David. That's the one who killed Goliath. And so they, he runs. He gets away. And so commentators who are opposing David and thinking that David's doing something very bad, they go, why would he go and do this the second time? It was a bad idea the first time. Surely it can't be a good idea the second time. 
But between these two times, do you remember what he did with the king of Moab? Now, this is something we don't, we don't easily remember. But David took his mom and his dad down to the land of Moab and asked the king in Moab to take care of his parents, and it worked. Well, now David goes back to Achish, and this time it worked. Achish received David this time. He receives all his men this time. So is this the worst decision of David's life or is this a tactic? I could be persuaded that this is a tactic. David had to make a decision. Maybe we don't think it's a great decision. But notice verse 3, And David lived with Achish at Gath. Who else lived with David and Achish? Who, who else was there? Achish's, uh, uh, David's wives, David's children, those men and their children and their families. And these people began to sleep all the way through the night without worrying about the madman coming after them. These people began to play ball in the evening for the first time without thinking about Saul coming after them. David got some rest. Has anyone ever said to you, if you do that, that will be the worst decision of your entire life? According to commentators, this is the worst decision of David's life. But if you look at this chapter and you see how David is going to get rest, David's going to be refreshed, you may think that David is not in a survival mode anymore, but you'll see that David is getting the rest and recovery that he needs. As you look at your own diary, and you think back through what you call the worst decision of your life, do you see that God's had a hand in it? Do you see God's mercy? That God gave you rest? Look back over your diary and see God as He's the master of rescue and recovery. When you censure yourself, you need to look back and you need to say, it was really not so bad after all. God was there. Second, God not only turns our worst decision, the worst decision of your life into a place of rest, but He also turns it into a place of success. Now, this is really cool stuff. David is resting and David is finding success. Now, look, he's living underneath the nose of Achish, right? He can't do anything if he's living right underneath Achish's nose. So David says, hey, can I have a country town? By the way, can I have a country town? Maybe he even suggested, can I have Ziklag? And so he gives him Ziklag. Well, do you know what Ziklag is? It's a little piece of success. He wants this town because David has a plan. Look at verse 6. It says, So Achish gave him Ziklag that day. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. Ziklag is on the southern border of Israel's property given by God back in the days of Joshua. It was the land that belonged to the Lord's people that the Philistines had taken. And so now, who is living there? The king-to-be is living in Ziklag with his men. Not underneath the nose of the king, Achish. And he's there so that he's establishing the kingdom of God in a miniature form 
in enemy territory. So he begins to plan to deceive Achish and to destroy all the Philistines. But it has to start in Ziklag. The kingdom of God is there. The king is there. His people are there. And he's going to do exploits. David might live in Philistia, but David was not a Philistine. And he's certainly not a fool. His plan is right in front of us if we would just see it. His plan is to increase the kingdom of God right underneath Achish's nose. He needed a place and he got that place. And from that point on, he began to do exploits. Let's talk about the exploits. The plan was that David would take his men and make raids. Do you remember all those ites we just read about? The Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. The ones that are most memorable to me are the Amalekites. Remember the Amalekites? They're the ones who strike God's people from the back, like the devil. But David, he goes out and he attacks these peoples who have taken over part of God's the land. And he goes out and he exterminates them exactly as Joshua had been told to do so years earlier. So David goes out to Israel's southern borders. He makes raids on these enemies. He puts them all to death so there's going to be no witnesses. He comes back with all the spoil and he goes to Achish and Achish says, what have you been doing, my my son, David? And he says, well, I've made these exploits. And he gives them very general answers. And it's real easy to receive general answers when you're getting camels and donkeys and cows and you're getting lots of spoil. (laughs) I mean, hey, are you really, really wanting to know what I did when I'm giving you all these gifts? And so all this stuff is happening right underneath Achish's nose. Achish is duped into believing that he's doing harm to Israel while David is actually building up Israel. No matter how fond of David Achish was, this is something you need to think about. To David, Achish was an enemy. Achish was the king of Gath, but Achish was an enemy. Do you remember who came from Gath? Remember Goliath from Gath? Remember who killed Goliath from Gath? Do you remember how many people from the among the Philistines that David killed just to get married to one woman? <laughs> Achish is not David's friend. This happens. This goes on for 16 whole months. And there's going to come a time where Achish is going to want David to go into battle against his own people. But listen to me very carefully. If he won't touch King Saul, he's surely not going to touch any of his own people. Man, I'll tell you what. Go look at David. If you tell David that you touch Saul, he puts you down. So David's not going to go out and actually hurt any of his own people. That's another thing. That's another time for another sermon later. One of the sweetest success as, as well, not only does he have this miniature kingdom already there in Ziklag, but in First Chronicles 12, we're told that David, while he stays in Ziklag, that many warriors from Israel, from Saul's camp, begin to come to David. They defect. <laughs> They're tired of, of dealing with this crazy man. And then, of all things, it also says many Benjamites from Saul's own tribe begin to join 
with David. So not only is he having the miniature uh, kingdom of God up there in Ziklag out of Achish's sight, but his army's growing. He's getting bigger. So this is simply not a backslidden David to me. Now, let me give you a couple of, couple of uh, applications. Have you come to see God in this light? In, in His mighty providence, He can take what you might call the worst decision of your life and He can give you rest and He can give you success. Maybe this will be a great time to remember some of these things. I wrote this down. How many times I've heard this? I've, now, I've probably heard it more, but I'm going to give you about four or five. When I left the denomination I was in, I was told this is the worst decision of your life. When I left the church that I was in to go become reformed, I was told this is the worst decision of your life. When I left the place I went to hoping to become more reformed, that didn't work out at first. And I went home to my parents' house and I was told, if you go move in with your parents, that will be the worst decision of your life. And when I went from working for a big company to working for myself, I had somebody tell me this will be the worst decision of your life. Listen, friends, listen. The worst decision of your life is never going to be about moving from one denomination to the next. It's never going to be about moving from one company to working for yourself. It's never going to be changing from this location or that location. The worst decision of your life will be that you do not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. That's the worst decision that anybody can make. If you will not break off with sin, if you will not let Jesus give Jesus the reins of your life, that's the worst decision of your life. So just back for a second. I've heard this line, that is the worst decision of your life. My wife and I, we moved back from Grand Rapids in 1996. And I would say we were in a terrible swamp. We didn't know what to do. Was this the worst decision of my life? I don't think so, looking back. What I remember with great clarity when I moved back from Grand Rapids is I came in a 24-foot trailer full of, full of uh, furniture and so forth, and we unloaded it. We didn't have anybody helping us like we do around here. We unloaded it all in the garage, and I remember my mom and dad taking us, putting us all to sleep, then getting us up and feeding us and taking care of us. I remember my dad went to a GNC store and talked to the owner of the GNC store and had me set up to go work at the GNC store because I had opened one in East Grand Rapids. So I had a place to work. So I was resting, and I can't tell you, we were, we were basically, I, I feel like uh, 1 Samuel 27 has my, been my life for a bunch of years. But we had a place to rest, we had food to eat, and we didn't have to just survive. There was literally times where I would get in the car and I would get to the stop sign in Grand Rapids and I would go, okay, I'm, I'm clean, I'm going to go work at GNC. Okay, oh, I'm not shaved, I'm going to go work at DeCorn Ethan Allen. <laughs> That's how it was working. This was just survival mode. And so, in David spent 16 months there, I think I spent... 10 years there. I think that I looked at these decisions that I've made. I went, I said, censured myself. I think I said to myself, I went off half cocked. I was immature. 
if ara, if ara, if ara, if ashura, ashura, ashura. So I didn't know what to do. I tried to get back in the denomination. I left. I went through four pulpit committees. And I started realizing that that wasn't the way to go. We kept working. We found a place to go to worship. Some of you guys know exactly what I'm about to say. We drove from Tyler, Texas to Shreveport, Louisiana. It's a 90-mile drive. Got there at 9.30, came back, left at 3.30, and got back at 5 every single Sunday. Wouldn't ever change it. Great place to worship. But then one day, Daddy broke the car. And when I broke the car, I couldn't drive that far anymore. And so then we're really spinning out of control. What are we going to do? How are we going to worship? Where are we going to worship? Well, my wife met the minister at Tyler Presbyterian Church, and we started going there. And so we had justly baptized. We started going to this church, and I'm working at the regional hospital in Tyler, Texas. And so I still feel like, well, we were resting. We were recovering. We, and I, I'm going to tell you, I was in misery because I still wasn't preaching. Um, we put money down on a house. Still wasn't preaching. Is this the worst decision of my life? If commentators had come to my house, they would have said, it looks like the worst decision of his life. But if they came and lived in my house, they would see that I loved my wife and my wife loved me and we loved our baby and we were going and worshiping and we were doing the things that we were supposed to do. I still had the misery of not getting to preach. I was having a fair amount of success. But where I was different than David, David has a direct word from God that he's going to be the king. And all I had was a desire to be a pastor again. And with the hopes of maybe a church recognizing that desire. David had a divine revelation and I had desire and a hope that a church would recognize it. That's where we were. I worked in the hospital and enjoyed success. And for three years, I literally didn't become a Philistine, but I did become another person. I was back up to speed in cardiac rehab. I wrote all my sermons. Let me tell you what I preached on. I preached on exercise. I preached on diet. I preached on nutrition. I preached on blood pressure. I preached on smoking cessation. I preached on stress management. I preached, I went and did health fairs. That's what I preached on. I was the community educator. I left the hospital going into business for myself, having done personal training, sports training. I worked for Nike for about 10 days. I had lots of Nike stuff for free. And I had my own community program, Leaner, Stronger, Living Longer. Isn't that cool? The marketing department, one time, just to give you a flavor, the marketing department, I started working for the marketing department. I was no longer working for the gym, but I was working for the marketing department. And they would come and they would pick me up and they'd say, um, we're going to go speak somewhere today. Oh, most of the time I knew. And so one day they called me up and they said, you're going to go speak somewhere today. I said, okay. And they picked me up. Where are we going? What am I speaking on? Uh, today you're going to speak to 420 third through fifth graders. Oh, what am I supposed to talk about? Eating and exercise. Never done this before in my life. I got 42 minutes till I'm there. Six classes of 70. And I'm sitting there going, um, Lord, what am I going to do? <laughs> I, I, what am I going to say? Well, these were my points. Go food. 
grow food and glow food. That was my point. Those were my points. And then I went and made them exercise for 20 minutes. I was resting and I had peace and I had success. But unlike David, he had a promise. I had just this desire. And as the days go by, I realize constantly that I might never be a minister again. Like a woman who wants a baby. Like Harry Bailey on It's a Wonderful Life who wanted to travel and live large. And he gives himself to the building and loan so that other people can succeed. We don't think that way anymore. Like a young man or a young woman who wants to be married and seems like it'll never happen. How many men at times give up their, their, their dreams in order to take care of their responsibilities? I realized it might never happen. It was going to be a terrible pill to swallow. People were interested in my life. People would come and talk to me and say, what about me? Can you talk to me about this? I remember talking to people and saying, you know, that, that may not ever happen. I said, they said, well, what do you think God's going to do with you if that doesn't happen? I said, well, I know that one thing it seems to be uh, coming to me, and I have to answer this question is this. Will you love me even if you don't get to do this? Will you walk with me? Will you lead your family? Will you read your Bible? Or what will, you, what, what, what will happen? Will you love me even if you don't get to be a minister again? Well, after three years at the hospital, I did go into business for myself. And we thought, the pastor and I thought, hey, this will be the way. The session and I thought this will be the way that I can have more time, more free time in order to pass through licensure exams and so forth. <laughs> but if you uh, go into business for yourself, you find out that it's the hardest thing you'll ever do in your entire life. And so I was in the gym probably working 45 hours, but to make to work the 45 hours, I had to probably be in the gym 50 or so hours. I didn't know when I was going to ever study and take these tests. I came under care of Presbytery, and then after a period of time, I came out from under care of Presbytery because I just did not see how in the world this would ever happen. And I was face-to-face -face with 1996. Did I make the worst decision of my life? Every Sunday, I felt it. And a little bit later in, in this scenario, Pastor Johnson came to me and he said, do you still want to be a minister? And I said, yes, I do. But how in the world can that work out? And he said, well, the sessions decided to pay you $1,000 a month. And we're going to ask for you to study five hours a week. Can you do that? Yes, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. I, I can do that. In fact, I think I studied 10 hours a week. And so I started making my way through these licensure exams. And then the next year, the session said, we're going to give you 2000 a month. And we want 10 hours of your time. And so I began to give that time to study and get through these exams. And things began to go. But I still, things are so slow, guys. And it's sometimes like we're talking about our budget and things are slow. Are we going to stick it out? What are we going to do? Are we going to trust? Are we going to keep praying when things are just a little slower than we would like? And I'm in the gym and I felt like, I felt like I'm Samson, blinded, grinding at the mill, real slow, really slow. What's God going to do with me? I had learned, I can say to you, I had learned to glorify God at 5 a.m., working clients out, counting their reps and not really liking it, but I learned to glorify God doing it. 
Lord, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll be content, but I still kind of like the idea of getting to preach. I think this is what it's all about, about being in Philistia. I think it's about feigning. I think it's about making a bad decision. And I think it's about finding out in all the sorrows and all the hurting that there were kids being born, that there were friends being made, that God was there the whole time, that there was success. And all I could think about was what I wasn't getting to do sometimes. But God was there. And eventually, this church helped me. And they even called me to be their associate pastor. I realize I think sometimes these things may not materialize. I think the most important thing we can do as men and women is to do our responsibilities. And I don't think you're going to hear very many people tell you that today. You may want another job, but will you be content to glorify God with the job you have? You may want another child, but will you be content with the children you have? You may want to be married, but will you wait? Will you wait? Will you glorify God where you are, even if your dreams maybe don't materialize? We have dreams and desires, but in the end, we don't have the exact promise like David did. We can pursue those dreams, and at the end of the day, we say, Lord, your will be done. And in the midst of it, let let me put it this way. In the midst of it, when you think you've made the worst decision in your life, look back. Look back and say, look, there was rest, there was success, there was peace. And, you know, I'm going to borrow George Bailey's line. You know what George Bailey said at the end of the movie? It's a wonderful life. It's a wonderful life. you got to look back and you see God is there. God is a wonderful God. God is a wise God. And He's taught me to love Him. And He's taught me that He loves me even when I'm in 1 Samuel 27. Let's pray.